Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenthal. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Calling Angela McCluskey and Paul Cantillon an extraordinary, multi-talented musical couple is an understatement. Angela is the Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter from Glasgow, best known for her ubiquitous hit Breathe and a voice that evokes Billie Holiday. With three solo albums under her belt and high-profile collaborations with Paul Oakenfold, Telepop Music, and even Kendrick Lamar, Angela has also flexed her unique artistry as an actress, painter, and now fashion designer. Paul is the son of an evangelist from Glendale, who as a child protege made his debut at Royce Hall at the age of 13, and now an award-winning film composer, celebrated for his exquisite and stunningly intimate film scores. Paul is as comfortable performing classical repertoire on solo piano in storied concert halls across the globe, as he is playing mandolin, dulcimer, guitar, fiddle, and banjo with a West Virginia bluegrass band. But it was on one fateful afternoon at a small Indian restaurant in London that the two crossed paths for the very first time. Their lives and their world of music would never be the same. Forming the Wild Colonials in the early 90s, an LA-based alternative rock band that fused folk-tinged melodies with unconventional instruments, these two bohemians from completely different worlds embarked on a romantic and creative partnership that still burns as bright as it did that afternoon in London. We welcome Angela McCluskey and Paul Cantillon to Art Laws. Paul, what was it about Angela when you first met her and heard her voice? What was that thing that drew you? It was, in a sense, shall I make the analogy of like the layers of a perfume, which is sort of hits you in a way that you can't really decipher in the fact that I was in another one of my Virginia Woolf meltdowns of a bit of a crisis in my life at the time. And I was at this, as you both well know, this very eccentric Indian restaurant in Southwest London. The owner had been fed up with me and said, oh, for goodness sake, stop being depressing and just play the piano. You're like whining away. (laughs) It was playing the piano. Firstly, so thus my perfume analogy was a combination. I heard this voice which I realized was someone just dining at a table. Somebody just dying. Absolutely extraordinary voice, just (laughs) singing along with me. And I was playing some bit rarefied, not a piaf, like a rarefied Faubourg song, like a mistanguette, something just, you know, plonking on the piano. But I heard this voice of an improvisation of someone. And I thought, oh my God, that voice, that um, not just the tone of it, but the sort of channel of emotional intensity. And then I turned around and on top of the voice was this woman, girl, literally in, (laughs) she used to have a great, I mean, horrid creature that he is, but she had a great collection of Galliano gowns and hats. And there was this girl in sort of a, one of Galliano's of that time of the collections, like an 18th century (laughs) picture hat in sort of pale O'Donnell blue and beige who was actually producing this voice. So I just like almost fell off the piano stool. So it was sort of a double whammy. And then on top of it, we have the pure redolent Glaswegian. And I didn't really know any Scots. So she was like, all right, like fucking pep it up. Or she said something I didn't really understand what she meant. <laughs> I had the accent, the voice, the vision. The galleon. And I was, that was it for me. And I like 
started to crumble almost under the piano, but then didn't. But Angela, you weren't a singer at the time. Does that yeah. make any sense, my perfume? Yeah, it, it, it does. I love the crumbling under the piano image. But what about Angela? Did you notice Paul at that time? Well, the real story behind what he just said was I was sitting in the corner having dinner with a friend and, and um, he wasn't an actor then. He'd just done a couple of things. We were broke and we used to go to this Indian restaurant all the time. I said, look at that piano player. He's kind of cute. And he's like, oh, darling, he's wearing white. And it's like September. <laughs> he's wearing a white Catherine Hamnet suit. And I just saw this long blonde hair and he was playing away. He wasn't working there, obviously. He was a friend of the owner who kept like a mosquito floating about all around him, you know. Hey, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. And I said, I'm going to go and talk to him. And I went over to speak to him and he was speaking in French to one of the waitresses. And I thought, uh-uh. And I made a turn back. I remember I said to Hugh, he's French. He went, oh, darling, he'll destroy the children. Oh. Your accent and his. Oh. <laughs> Very funny. And I said, all right, well, never mind. And I had another couple of glasses of wine. And then I thought, I know what. I'll go and sing a French song. And I didn't know any French songs. So I went up behind him very tipsily, and I just sang in his ear, Accoutrement, poisson, fromage. (laughs) Cheese. And and he turned around and he looked at me, and I swear to God, this is what he said. Do you want to hear what he really said? I'm from Glasgow. He turned around and he said, you have the most desperately unique voice I've ever heard. We just talked all over that. He said, you have the most desperately unique voice I've ever heard. And I literally said, I suppose I'll have to marry you now. And that was how we met. Love it. You're known for this band, Wild Colonials, that you formed together. What was the road to get to that Wild Colonials? A total accident. I came to America for a week and I stayed and I blagged myself a job as an interior designer from with somebody from CAA, got money under the table, was completely illegal, persuaded Paul to come out for my birthday in February, even though he had just moved to London to be with me, maybe six months before from San Francisco. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to stay. And he was like, please, not LA. I don't like LA, you know. And I was like, oh, don't worry. I, I, I'm just going to be here for a little while. And he came over and I had a friend, Shark, who ended up in the Wild Colonials, who wanted to find a new manager. So he was looking for a, a little club. And in London, we used to run a little soiree every Sunday night called Marie's Big Night Out or Angela's Big Night Out. Everybody would just get together. It was very Scottish. Everybody would sing. And because Paul had started me singing all these songs, I decided we'd do something. You know, he came over to America and this woman, the mother of the guy that I was working with, this fabulous old woman called Marna Spiegel, she heard me singing in her car and she went, you know what, kid, you got a voice. I'm going to call my friend Marty. He owes me a favor. And she called William Morris and she got me a gig at the Atlas Barn Grill, which at that point was the biggest supper club in LA. It was just beautiful. And I didn't have a band and I didn't have any songs. I said, you can't do that. And I was advertised. I gave her a tape of Paul and I singing Don't Explain, the most depressing version in the world. <laughs> they gave it to the extremely gay manager at the Atlas. And he's like, oh, my God get it in here and I was advertised as Britain's newest singing sensation in the LA Weekly and I was only there I was completely illegal I had no band I'd know nothing and the gig was in two weeks and that's how the Wild Colonials began literally so Paul came out and we learned a bunch of songs and we played that gig we played a bunch of cover songs like Tom Waits and we met Lily Hayden there who played the violin and joined us and that is literally how the Wild Colonials started that wasn't me having a band. I was just doing one gig and that was it. The story was much longer and much more of an American dream. Playing at the Cafe Largo every Tuesday night, just 
how I found a band, you know, a drummer who didn't like playing the drums. What? Paul wants to say something. There were so many wonderful, mad little bits. I played, as a kid, before I switched to piano, I played the violin and then I played it professionally in my pre-teens and then early teens before I switched. And can I just say something about that, Paul? I'm curious, because you made your debut at 13 at Royce Hall as a violinist. I did, and I had played. I was good on the fiddle, and I played in the L.A. Chamber Orchestra in the back of the second fiddle section. But when my infamous bike accident with brain damage and bits, which came when I was 17, after 17, I had never touched the violin again. And Angela had said in this early grouping of the pre and beginning well colonials she had said oh try the violin i say can you play anything yeah it'd be fun to have the fiddle as part of it and i you know waffled on about my brain damage which has always been my favorite excuse for everything in life and she had said oh for goodness sake get it out from under the bed and just try something so i had sort of reinvented this scraping mosquito buzzing way that i still play but on a a pleasantly more serious note, what happened was this was a link because music, in my case, just like many examples, I was thinking of the what was Sachs, who's the great of the music never stopped. But this became a link to a reconnection of things that I had forgotten. So in a sense, it was a healing thing. In trying to scrape away on the fiddle, it reconnected me to a loss of memory before the accident. So that was a special. It was pretty amazing because it was like a Oliver Sacks. It was a bit <laughs> Oliver Sacks. What, what did you say, Oliver Sacks? Yeah, He's, I was making reference because he said to me, "What was the sax player?" And he actually meant Oliver Sacks. I meant like uh, yeah, ch. <laughs> About 14, 15 years ago, I did the score for an Oliver Sacks piece called "The Music Never Stopped," where music was actually the, the only thing that made. Oh, uh, the boy that suffered with amnesia reconnected things that he had forgotten. So the violin, by happenstance, became this link to memory loss. It was very funny because it was like a train smash at first. It was and then suddenly he became like the focal point of the band. He became like the lead guitarist. We'd be on the stage at the Troubadour and all the guys would wear kilts and Paul had this long blonde hair and he'd play the fiddle so violently that all the hair would come off it. And the girls in the front would be all screaming and everything like he was like Led Zeppelin or something. It was amazing. It actually was quite something to see. And his violin playing was astonishing. He ended up getting pulled in. He played for some really big bands. And before we ever signed a record deal, that's why I was saying it was like magical what happened. I did not come here thinking I'm 29 years old. I did not come here thinking I'm going to start a band. It was the last thing in my mind. And we actually played every week. And the guy from the Chili Peppers, the drummer from the Chili Peppers, came to my door one morning and basically said, my wife is an enormous fan. I'd like you to sneak up to our house at the weekend and play. And I didn't know who this guy was. I said, I'm sorry. And I'm trying to shut the door in his face. He's like, no, no, I'm in a band as well. He's like, I'm the drummer with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I was like, come in, cup of tea, custard cream, you know. And he started telling us about his wife being obsessed with the Wild Colonials. So we ended up up at his house the afternoon, getting all ready, you know, playing the songs. And then we left. We came back that night, played the gig, and his wife went into hysterics. He then asked me for a tape. And I said, we don't have any tape. We're just, like, playing for fun. And three or four days later, he called me up, and he said, I want all of you to come to Studio 57, which was Phil Spector, Elvis White Christmas Studio, very famous on Santa Monica Boulevard. We all turned up. 
he had set up the whole place like it was the Cafe Largo, which was like tables and candelabras and had a couple of friends there all lit with candles. He then made us watch Spinal Tap for some weird reason and then (laughs) produced this five track demo tape where in actual fact he ended up playing most of the drums. And we ended up, this was our album. We had this album and he then played drums with us for about six months. And we got a record deal. We got offered about five or six record deals. And I kept saying no because I was illegal. (laughs) I was scared. How did you come up with the name Wild Colonials? The Wild Colonials came because a few weeks before this had all happened, we'd been playing our gig. And one day I got a call from a guy from the Fairfax Church. He said, you know, we're having a wee Irish party tomorrow night. One of our youngsters has died of liver poisoning there and we're having a party. Typical Irish. He said, I'd love you guys to come and play. I said, well, we're not really a band. He said, oh, come on now. I just saw you were all wonderful. I said, okay, then I put the phone down. I looked up the Irish songbook, you know, and while I was looking it up, he called me and he said, now what's the name of the band now? I'll need it for the church poster. I said, well, I don't really have one. He said, make one up. And I was looking through the titles of the Irish songs, you know, Paddy and Mickey, Go to Kilkenny, The Wild Irish Rose, The Wild Colonial Boy. And I said, Wild Colonials, because we were all from like, Sharp was from Canada. He was from, you know, wherever. And so I just said, Wild Colonials. And then I told the guys that night, I said, we're doing a gig tomorrow at the Fairfax Church for 200 bucks. And we're called the Wild Colonials. And they were like, what? The Wild Colonials? (laughs) And that is how it started. So you had like various labels you were saying pursuing you, but you ended up signing with Geffen Records, right? But how did that overnight success change the dynamic of the band? That was overnight success. I had a bass player who would be like, if I'm going to play in this band, I really need to know the focus of what's going on. And I'd be like, well, we'll play for three months and then we'll get a tape and then we'll go to record labels and then we'll get a manager. And and because he did this, he kept coming back and saying like, have you done this yet? And I had to keep doing what I said I would do. And so... We ended up like having this demo tape done by Chad and we had this gig every Tuesday night that was called Angela's Big Night Out. The thing was, until I felt like we were ready, because I'd worked at EMI, I remember, for like three years. So I knew everything about the record business and everything. And I was like, this is just a fun thing. But we became very, very popular, very, very fast. Like people that went on a rider and fucking Bono, everybody would come. Anybody who was in town would come. And if you were rich, you had to pay double. And if you were poor, you didn't pay anything to get in. And we didn't allow record labels in. So when they came in, they had to come in undercover. So it was this real sort of like thing about it that was quite unique. So they do residencies here in LA at the time. And that's how the Cafe Lark was started really becoming big. It was nothing before that. And we literally played every Tuesday night. And then gradually, you know, I remember Harry Dean Stanton was in the audience and he was with Danny Houston. And Danny, I hadn't seen for 10 years. We'd shared an apartment in London 10 years before and I'm on stage singing and Danny's like Angie <laughs> in the middle of a gig Angie <laughs> and he's with Harry Dean and Harry's like oh can I go up and that's how Harry started singing and playing in a band so many amazing things happened we got offered you yeah. know deals like Scott Litt who worked with R.E.M. at A&M Deaf America and Warners and I kept saying no because I was like terrified that I was illegal. And I remember having a meeting with Rosemary Carroll, who's like one of the big lawyers of the day. I mean, the biggest, Nirvana and everything. And she's like, well, why aren't you saying yes to any of these deals? I said, because I'm illegal. And she was like, don't be ridiculous. They're offering you like hundreds of thousands of dollars. You won't be illegal the next day after they offer you this. So you're fine. And I was like, really? <laughs> and then because I'd said no, everybody kept coming back with more money. And everybody <laughs> thought I was this like amazing negotiator. 
Nobody realized for a minute I was terrified of being deported. <laughs> and so, so funny. Tony Berg, he was like the brother-in-law of a girl who lived across the way from us. And she said to me, you know, I'd like to give my tape to him. And I was like, well, okay then. And they came back to us and they offered us like a million point five. And I was like, wow. what? <laughs> no, wow. I couldn't believe it. And within like a few days, we had a merchandising deal for like 200,000, a publishing deal for 300,000. And I went from having like 40 bucks. I remember I was working in some stupid English show called Owen for London, a TV show. And I was doing like help research in the Valley. And I remember sitting in this cafe on Olive downstairs you know the way they're always kind of really empty and kind of dark in the afternoon and I remember sitting on this stool and the phone rang and it was Rosemary Carroll and she said they've offered 1.2 million or something wow (laughs) and I was sitting there and I put the phone down and I remember this incredible heat from the top of my head all the way through right down to my toes and I thought Fucking hell, I've done it. Was was I that felt- a record at the time? I mean, 1.2, was that a record in terms of like the amount of money offered a new band? That was insane. It started off at 200. But because people like the R.E.M. guy was after us and George DeCoulis from Deaf America was after us, it was the producers who loved us. And when right. producers love you, you know, record labels can sign you. They might not get the right producer, but if a producer loves you, you know, it's insane. And so in the end... They started such a buzz. And then, of course, I was terrified because what happens is you sign that deal and you go from no money to nothing. The next day, I've got a manager, a business manager, I've got a merchandise deal. I'm having meetings at Warner Chapel. And I'm just like, this is insane. Uh, were they basing this on your live performances? Were they basing this on a demo? Like what? At this point, you were writing your own songs, right? The live performances. There was nobody like us. We were kind of like the arcade fire of the day. I mean, we had cello we had violin you could come down and see our show and Ricky D. Jones would be singing with us or you could come down and see Bono on stage or Matt Johnson from that that I mean it was just like this very magical way of gathering people in like you've all been to them you've seen all the things that we do those nights those nights are all I ever thought of and that's what I did in London and that's very Glasgow you know gather everybody together and everybody sings it wasn't about me it was about everybody singing and it just turned into the first song I ever wrote, I was sitting on Fairfax and Shark was sitting beside me with a guitar and I had a couple of like poems and things like that and a, a song called Spark. Spark is gone, but the love lives on. And he started playing. And that was the first song. The next day I did Girl and the next day I did World. And I thought, this is dead easy. I'd never tried it before. I'd never actually tried because you always think writing a song is so difficult. You know, you have to be able to play the notes and then you have to be able to like write a melody. No, it wasn't. It was like, somebody would just play something and I would just sing a melody and I just happened to have this very melodic called talent talent (laughs) (laughs) and I could write and the songs I was writing were kind of they were just so different because we'd violin instead of lead guitar and we had even didgeridoo at some point we were just very very different but really exciting and that went from the Cafe Largo to the Troubadour where it would be jams so we became this cult band very very fast also there's a sort of thing that every Tuesday night girls would come on their own. I remember Jennifer Aniston coming and she's saying, I mean, these are all before any of these people have made it. This is so brilliant because I can get out and I can come on my own and I know that I'll be safe. And it was just a really safe environment. I had a great feeling about it and everybody got to know each other. And even to this day, all those people, and then that was the days before the internet, I would put cards on the tables 
and you had to fill them in and it would say, you know, what do you think of the band? You know, all these questions, give us your phone number, whatever. And every single Monday, the day before the gig, I would call each person personally, like 150 people, and I would leave a message, hi, we're playing tomorrow night. Da, da, da. And that's actually what built up. It was like grassroots kind of like. I think market. you still do that, actually. I still you do. I still. And you guys also had a show at the Troubadour recently, maybe, what, two years ago? Yeah, that was a reunion. That was the first time the Wild Colonials had played in 10 years or 15 years even. Try 30. Yeah. Well, we hadn't even seen each other. And I made the mistake of saying, yeah, we're going to open with the Wild Colonials and then we're going to play with my other band with my new record, not realizing that I'm doing a double set of myself, which was absolutely exhausting. But yeah, the Troubadour was where it all kind of started. And then we ended up signing that deal. And then we ended up going to... England to work with the uh, Peter Gabriel studio to work with a guy called Chad Blake, works with Tom Waits and Elvis Costello and all those sort of people. And he'd never produced before. He was always a mixer with Mitchell Froome. And Tony Berg had persuaded him to maybe go out. And he was like, why don't you come and produce your first album with these guys? This guy was a famous, famous mixer. And he was like, no, 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 no. And he said, well, come and see them. So he came to see us at the Troubadour. And then when Chad Smith from the Peppers on drums. And then we went to Sunset Sound that night and we played the whole gig live on Adaptate. And then the next day we all went to England to the studio that I swear to God, it was so overwhelming. The studio was the most amazing place you've ever seen in your life. The actual studio itself, it was like something out of Dr. Strangelove. It was this gigantic control room with glass all around it and water and ducks and a glass floor that had piranha fish swimming under the glass floor. And every night you gathered in this banqueting hall with like medieval tables and they would bring out wines and, you know, it was like Sinead was there and Peter was there and all these different like superstars who were actually there at at the time. And we'd sit down every night and have this incredible banquet. We'd sleep in four poster beds. I mean, it was overwhelming. You're not going to believe this. I woke up the first day to record and lost my voice. And we were paying $180,000 for the two weeks there. And I lost my voice. And it was absolutely terrifying. And we had the Elvis Costello's drummer, Pete Thomas. And him and I would go to the pub every day. And he'd been sober for a while, so he couldn't drink. And I couldn't speak. And we'd sit there. I would drink and write notes. It was hysterical. And my voice never came back. And so I would try and like get through the songs, and we'd do them all. And then we got back to America. I didn't like any of the tempos and we ended up using, and this is the truth, the little dat tape from the night before we left where we played live in the studio the night before we left for England became the basis for the first world colonial record. Wow. So I had to add one of my favorite vignettes from Peter Gabriel's from the real world session. So uh, Nusrat Fatil Ali Khan was there to record unbeknownst to all of us and he'd caught sight of Angela and just adored her on sight and loved her singing. So being the great diva devo that he is, suddenly in a slight, it was not even during recording, it was in a pause between songs, he swept in full koale splendor into the recording room going, doing a koale singing at the top of his lungs. And Angela looked over, didn't realize who he was and said, could you hold that thought? I like your enthusiasm, but you know, whatever. And he kept <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, could you just wait? Get out of the room. He's going, hey, 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 hey. 
you know, behind me, and I didn't realize it was like the world famous. But also, these guys are, they're not supposed to be near women, you're supposed to be five feet behind them. And all that stuff. It was crazy. I mean, the thing about it is the the real story of the colonials, I've cut out most of the magical parts, sadly, but just telling you the basics. Because 20 hours. Yeah, but what really happened was magical, you know, like arriving here and getting a job and being this interior decorator for the guy who won the rights to Roald Dahl's short stories, Michael Siegel, and his mother making me sing, and then the church, and then the Cafe Largo, and then the Troubadour. I remember waking up one day after about, I was only there nine months. I'm 29, and I'm like, this is nuts. Who signs a record deal at 29, you know? And the next thing you know, we're on an American tour with Chris Isaac, who I adored. Huh. So that He was great. Me. I remember him from that. And then that Joe time. Carter. And then King Crimson. What was it about Wild Colonials that, I mean, it seemed like all these great artists and producers, there was something about your band that made them want to help you and made them take notice. Well, we're just different. You know, you've got a classical pianist who's playing violin, but we could sit down and he'd kick ass and we'd do Don't Explain at the beginning of every show. So it was like, what the fuck? You know, they would be like, what is this? And then we'd do these incredible versions where he would play violin like he was in Radiohead. I mean, we had just so much talent that if you put it on a bit of paper, we've got a rock guitarist, we've got a violinist, we have a drummer who uses programs because he hates the drums. We also had a guy playing sax who was Jay Roy's brother from HBO. I'd gone to an HBO screening and for a Sybil Shepherd film. This is when HBO had just started and I'd met Jay and he was like, oh, come along. And I'm sitting there and there was a guy beside me. He said, oh, I edited this. And I said, oh, you're an editor. He said, yeah, but really, I'm a sax player, you know. And it turns out he got it Berkeley and was him and Diana Kroll had started a band. So there's so many stories. So I end up with a top, top jazz player, but who also could play. I'd say, could you learn um, how to play the melodica over the weekend? And could you learn the bass over the weekend? And he would learn it. What about didgeridoo? We, We toured with Midnight Oil and I was crazy about them. We would go on tour and buy like long lengths of toilet piping from hardware stores and I would hand paint them. And then I would do like a little scroll where I tell you how to play it and put a ribbon around it. We sell it for $25 and I would paint homemade t-shirts. I mean, we did all this. We were just completely before our time. And then we really kicked off when we got the Lilith Fair which was Sarah McLaughlin's tour, you know, with Mm -hmm. Apple and Nina Person from the Cardigans. We were the opening for the B stage, which meant at twilight when the sun went down, there's thousands of people there and we would come on and it was amazing. And then afterwards, it was a big tent. Fiona had Cheryl Crow as well. We had a big giant tent with Persian rugs. Only girls when they're doing a festival, you know, they know how to do it. Persian rugs and musicians and instruments everywhere. And we'd all just sit and jam after the gigs. It was just magical, magical, amazing times. These were the times when, you had a record label behind you and they paid for the tour and everything, you know, like I'm lucky that I was there in a time when you had a record label and they looked after you, you know, and Eddie Rosenblatt from Geffen who ran Geffen Records and his wife, Bobby, he basically said to me, Bobby loves you. You could do whatever you like. We weren't like, well, you have to have a pop single or you have to have this and that. And we nearly did it. We were very close. It was between us and the band called Cat and Crows. Mr. Jones, you remember that? Yeah. Down here. When did the solo albums, I mean, after Wild Colonials, or was it during Wild Colonials, when did you decide to kind of branch out and write your own material? We did like three albums, and then we were at that point where 
either we had to, you know, it was bought over by a big water company and they wanted pop songs. And I had a clause in our contract that if Tony Berg or Ian Argy wasn't there, we could leave. That's when I got a call from Telepop Music and went to Paris and obviously had one of the biggest hits of my life and got the Grammy and everything for Breathe. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did you connect with them? Well, that was just ridiculous. I mean, we were playing at the Mercury and Paul and I had done Don't Explain and there was this guy in the audience. I didn't know this at the time, but he had heard this and, and he'd gone back to Paris. And then I got a call a few months later and this French guy and he's like, hello, this is Christophe. Uh, um, I am doing an album and... Uh, we were wondering, would you like to, you know, and I thought it was another person I knew called Christoph who made children's albums. So I was like, yeah, no, whatever, whatever. Yeah. I wasn't really interested. And he kept calling me back. He's like, you know, we will fly you to Paris. I'm like, wait a minute. Are you Christoph that lives in Bronson Canyon? He's like, no, uh, I live in, uh, you know, the Rue Bauberg in Paris. And I was like, oh, I said, you're completely not the guy with the children. No, uh, I'm with the band uh, called Telepop Music. We are with EMI in uh, France. And uh, I see you uh, play at the Mercury and I'm thinking maybe you could come and do one song with us. So I was like, oh, okay. So I went over to Paris and at this point I'm on my own. I'm in Paris and I go to the studio like, and there's four French guys in there and it's the size of a broom cupboard. There's no like screen room even singing. And that's actually where Breathe comes from. I was lying on this like horrible little leather couch. You can imagine what these studios are like. They all chain smoked completely. There was no like air in the room. I just couldn't believe it. And I was lying on the couch and I would have the microphone on my chest. And I would joke. I would just be like, just breathe. <laughs> oh, right. I, I never tell anybody this because it usually ruins because most people are like, that song changed my life. Did you think that it was going to become the hit that it did? No, it was a one. And what's song. the name of the song, Angela, again? It's called Breathe. You know the song, definitely. That's the most famous. It was on every commercial. It was just everywhere. heard it every hotel lobby in the world. I was standing outside the other day and it came on the speakers outside some store and I was laughing. I literally went over there and I would be lying on the couch and I'd just be going, another day, just breathe. Another day, just believe. You know, and even the words lying here, staring at the ceiling, you know, I mean, it's completely uh, about somebody just like, I can't fucking breathe because these guys are smoking me out of house and home. And when <laughs> I'm only supposed to do one song with them. So you do like four or five or six, you know, so that you can choose. I get back to New York and they send me an album about three or four months later. And the first song on it is this song, Breathe. And I'm like, oh. this can't be a single. It's just me saying breathe. Oh, like, the, it's me saying breathe 27 times. <laughs> And then staring at the ceiling and then another day and then breathe, just believe. And they were like, no, 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 this is, a, this is an anthem. And literally within about three weeks, we got the first Mitsubishi commercial where they had black family in it. And they used Breathe, and within about three months, it sold half a million records. And it was like number fucking one everywhere. Oh, it was insane. And, and gets so a Grammy amazing. nomination. Yeah, and suddenly I'm now playing Glastonbury I'm, I'm leaving Glastonbury to go to Moscow then I'm leaving St. Petersburg to go to Zurich and then I'm, we played about 25 festivals and we headlined a lot of them it was stories like you wouldn't believe and it, to be honest after about 18 months of this I was not keen I'm in a fucking tour bus with 12 French guys who chain smoke uh-huh. and talk <laughs> air for four hours they can really chat 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 and they speak in French and my French was terrible I'd be calling Paul from Madrid to help me order the desk because nobody speak English. I mean, the stories are incredible. I lost my passport like five times. There's just stories like you wouldn't believe the things that happened to us. And that's what the podcast is about. We did our podcast where we literally, after 20 years of Paul being in a studio doing the film stuff and me being on tour, 
we literally sat down in this house in LA and looked at each other and we're like, hi, yes. how are you? Yes. How are you? And we started chatting. And when the pandemic started, I thought, oh, there's a little app for a podcast. We can send this, you know, our friends who are all on their own. At that point, we were feeling really bad for them. We thought, oh, we'll do a little podcast and send it to our friends, you know, around the place. And before you knew it, we got picked up by quite a big site in the UK. And then we had to do all proper, you know, get the real mics and the real this and that, because the other one had like cats and wine bottles and all sorts of noises. And I loved that, though. But the whole point was, that's what I wanted. It was like, I'm doing a podcast. We're not interviewing people. It's just Paul and I sitting in a couch. And we're literally talking and telling stories because half the time we're like, oh, wow, that happened to you. And I'll be like, that happened to you. So we're literally getting to know each other. So all the years of sitting in a tour bus, I remember waking up in St. Petersburg and I'd been sleeping for hours and I looked out the window and I was in front of the Hermitage. And if you've ever done that, it's a pretty unbelievable moment. These little curtains and the little Volkswagen that they'd sent to the airport for us. And there in front of me, with the sun shining, is this big yellow and amazing white building, the Hermitage, with the water running in front of it. And in the water where the festival was they had these gigantic blow-ups of all the master paintings just going up in a boat up the middle of the water and I was like where the fuck am I and you remember St Petersburg was built on the fact that you know Peter the Great loved Paris and was pretty jealous so he was like I'm going to build Paris but double so he did it double the size of that show what Paris looks like so it's a pretty phenomenal moment but at the same time I'm thinking I'm really missing my life. I never was interested in being a pop star. Never, never, never. I worked at EMI. I've been there. I've seen all these people go through hell, especially women in bands. It's horrible. You can't get drunk. You can't pick up men. You can't do drugs. You're the lead singer. The guys are all having a great time. But as a woman, it's horrible. I was just getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And while I was singing the last song, I would be like, I hope they've got room service in Russia. You know, it's awful. There was such just a one tiny vignette once. Uh, there were many of these occasions, but Angela called me. I was, you know, eagerly waiting on the phone in New York. And she said, oh, hello, darling. Right. Yeah, I miss you, too. I miss you, too. Could you help me with the room service? <laughs> so I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And she said, all right, well, here's a number. And I called some obscure hotel in Lyon, like in the outskirts. And the woman answered and said, like, bonjour, c'est uh, l'hôtel de Fréjus. And I said, yes, madame in room 112 would like the Chateaubriand and a half bottle of but why doesn't she ring herself? And I said, oh, but the French, but she just ring down. She's in her room. And I said, no, but she wants this. I can't speak French. So I was trying to do the room service in French from New York, but she just has to pick up the phone. (laughs) I tried five times. I tried, I went down there and it was like a scene from Faulty Towers. Like 15 people came out of the kitchen and out of the office. (laughs) And because of my accent, I can speak French, basically, but these people had a dialect that was just not even vaguely understandable. And the madder I get, the more Scottish I become. I'm like, for fuck's sake, I just want a fucking roast chicken. And they'd be like, uh, uh, key? And I'd be like, a roast chicken, you know, with, with um, potatoes, you know, and uh, potatoes, you know. Sounds I mean, really yummy. I want that right now. The classic can example. Can you call for me, Paul, please, to get that kind of... <laughs> a classic example of the Scottish vowels for ages, Angela would always say, merci beaucoup, which is asshole. And I would say, <laughs> beaucoup, not qui. <laughs> Endless howls of giggles. So, so to shift gears for a second, talking about your solo careers, Paul, beyond being a rock star and a child protege, you 
are an award-winning film composer, and you compose the score for Diving Bell and the Butterfly and several others in Julian Schnabel collaboration. And can you tell us just a little bit about how that came about and how you choose the films that you compose and score? Thank you. Thank you, Robin. And also to add, my favorite score is your dear brother's Effie Gray. That's something that I really, really adore doing. And how it came about, a friend of mine in New York said, look, I want to help you produce a classical album of trio works, but I think that the film music would give you like a bit of a trampoline to sort of get up and do this if you would try. And I, I waffled about and it was sort of an ungainly experience. And then things sort of went on for like a year or two. And when the diving bell came, the best thing, which was really sort of my bit of launching, the story that I treasure from that with Julian Schnabel was I had a piece I had written for Angela, which is, this is not terribly known. And it was called my, you know, my pet nickname, you all know well for Angela, which is Anglefish. Not Angelfish, but Anglefish. It's ridiculous. My parents' last home in British Columbia in Victoria, I'd written this sort of seven, eight minute ballad type of classical form piece called Anglefish. Not too much detail. Julian had heard this, called me in the middle of the night shrieking. My poor mother answered sort of locked jawedly and said, who is this? And said, like, who wrote this? Who wrote this piece? And I said, well, I did. I said, what? What? And like hung the phone up. And then he realized finally someone told him this is actually an original piece by poor Paul. And that was requisitioned for the theme of the diving bell, that simple piano piece. And then a whole ungainly gaggle of subjects and films started coming my way with Oliver Stone, with W. I must say, I think I was hired. I know so. In fact, I was hired for that because Oliver became intrigued at my father's evangelist tent meeting rostrum past and that there was a whole subtext in Bush of his sort of evangelical Southern Baptist bits. And I kept getting these odd subjects then to the other Boleyn girl and odd period pieces to the Innocence Project film Conviction, like very odd subjects. But Mm -hmm. to answer you in finishing very, I think that's important. I didn't really, most of us... We were worried when the band finished. even, Even to John Williams sort of immortal film composers, we don't really, outside of things that are completely offensive, have the right to choose what we're offered. We sort of take the best bits and get sort of our quills and piano notes round and try and write something. But I must say, in absolute finishing, the funny thing is some of the subjects that seem the most unsuited for me, like W and such, were things that I, I think were the most legitimate in little musical bits I produced. And I just sort of went on film to film and tried to keep myself afloat. We were really so, worried, end of World Colonials, that what was Paul going to do now, you know? What was he going to do? Really. I, I'm off doing telepop. I think it was, I met Liev Schreiber. He was a friend of mine. He was telling me that he was doing this film called Everything's Illuminated, based on Jonathan oh, Safran Four. And I'd said to him, you know, well, my husband's brewing all that kind of music and they ended up having a meeting and that was his first score and it's still one of my favorite scores it's a ever. Great score. It is. That's one of my favorites of yours score. as well. So how do you approach, Paul, a film differently from other types of composition? What is your way in? Is it the character? Is it the script? How do you get inside of all of that? That's a lovely question in that, firstly, I was lucky in the beginning of my 
starting point onwards to work with directors that were often like 10, 15 years older than me or even older. So they were of a very old school, meaning that there was an old traditional form. If you go back to Alex North, to the Newman pair, to the old composers Mm -hmm. back in the 30s and 40s, they would give you the script. So they sort of held on to this tradition. So I I say spoiled because when I started off after um, Illuminated on, and then certainly Julian and onwards to Oliver, older, older directors, they would give me a script, I would read them, and then they would be happy with my very modest process of writing a group of themes. And then I would say, this is my, to the best of my compositional ability, this is how I see this person. Once the theme was, I guess to use the term, spoke to them in a way that they felt it had some relation, correlation, then I would want to weave that theme. And there would often be many themes or different characters, but the main theme of the hero, heroine, that would weave through the whole process. And ensuingly, hopefully again quickly said, I often wouldn't even see picture or rushes or anything. Now, of course, because I've done a lot of films in my my way, often other projects were to picture and really precise and like you had to really write to picture. But I like if you guys, if you go uh, both gave me a story, I would like to write a little something that I thought maybe had a bit of feeling, my feeling about the protagonist. And then I would want to weave that through the story. So I was very spoiled, got to have that process of writing thematically in the old fashioned way through the picture. Well, it's interesting because I had the honor of spending some time with you and working with you on a little bit on Effie Gray. And, yes. and it seems you brought a real sensitivity to the character of Ruskin and empathy. And he was not such a likable character. And I'm just curious how that happened. I'm glad. Thank you for mentioning that and asking that because as I mentioned, I really loved and love this film so much for what it does, what it did to me musically and also the whole subject in its entirety. What I loved about Ruskin and the Donald allowed me to do mm-hmm. was this will be told very quickly because it's much too much of a Pandora's box. Being the <laughs> son of a preacher from an evangelical world, in my day, very obviously, unspeakably luckily, I met Angela, which was the luckiest thing that ever happened in my life, obviously. But before that, if one was to go out with a girl and even hold their hand, that was already like on the sinful first front. That was like a taboo. It was a world of such incredible repression. And if we take Ruskin, just sort of without going into into the delvings of the foundation, he was obviously so complicated, so repressed, so I don't like that word. He was so complex that before the, as you well know, which is beautifully shown in the film, the infamous wedding night, everything he went through, he was absolutely in chains beyond Scroogean chains to all of his complexities in the past. So, of course, musically, to try and show this, I was coming from an angle of really almost tearful, real compassion and understanding because I knew what it's like to come out of that and try to make a real little path and a place in the world and have a relationship and etc. So that's how I approached him. And then thus his theme and with Effie herself, something so girlish that I hope is shown in the music that is 
when we think of that prologue, and then it becomes incredibly twisted with the laudanum, the messes, all the stuff that she had to suffer through. Mm-hmm. I hope that answers. Thank you. Sorry. What, what about with W? It's similarly, I find s- such sympathy and nuance in that film as well, which you scored. Like, how do you, and I don't want to presume any political views or, or whatnot with George W., how do you approach a character that maybe you can't easily find sympathy for? It's similar in a way in that hilarious stories for another time of my dear father as a evangelist slash, in a romantic sense, well known for his books as a financier and then a fundraiser was besieged early on in my life, not in his, but in the 80s with his association with, I'm just going to all spit it out, with Reagan, with Kissinger, with all sorts of people. Of course, my, my story of nearly crushing Reagan at one of the inaugural concerts with a piano that slid off the stage. But this was gnarly because, Daddy, this was, you know, right-wing horror show a bit. So, however, my father, who, though as complex as an O'Neill hero from a play, was very endearing and had many fond memories I have of him and miss him. I'm very endearing. So once Oliver sort of jumped onto the bandwagon of, I came from this evangelical, before my classical, my Paris conservatory bits on, I was like absolutely based in tent meeting Texas revival meetings. Again, I wanted to show a torturous side of the person, of the individual that they're not really altogether responsible for. There are some cues to quickly say, obviously, with not too much ridiculous detail, but there are a bunch of pieces called like the unraveling and such, but they're based around uh, tent meeting Texas hymns, which is torturous because it's what I had to do as a teenager on, I decide, uh, I was telling Angela in detail on the last week, which was wonderful to tell her about it, that I made a decision at the age of Around 13, I thought, well, look, I said to myself, that is, you want to keep your faith, but this dogma is unbearable. So try and keep your little kernel of that you pray it's internal. It can be to Mickey Mouse. It doesn't really matter, but keep it and move on without the dogma. And I think that's admirable, but it has an element of torturousness to it. So I think that he was knowing those, especially the, I'll take the Reagans and people around them, I knew them, I knew them well. There was an element of, of sort of muddledness and confusion about they want to like keep something pure and good a kernel, but then everything gets so messed up and it's that was a bit long-winded. So I'm sorry. It was wonderful. I'm curious, you're in the process of scoring a film. I'd imagine it would be in some ways all consuming. And how yeah. does that play into your relationship? And does Angela give you a lot of space at the time, or do you? Speak her feedback at times. How does that work? It's actually awful because you've been in the studio 18 hours a day and I would be touring. That's why when we got together here, it was like getting to know each other. But I am very, very lucky because Mm -hmm. since we met in the wonderful, infamous Star of India, the restaurant story, to me, it was an absolutely mythical kindred spirit musical union outside of our mortal union and joy we have together on this earth. It was such a kindred spirit musically, and I am so incredibly lucky because she has what I would call golden ears and great musical sense. And especially in the time in this house in Nichols Canyon, my studios in our perambulations were always outside of the house. I would, you know, have a studio elsewhere. But 
now that my studio, which is my favorite of my rambling life here, I write bits, I call her in, she hears and she never, and I'm not being like all foffy and complimentary. She never gives me advice that isn't, if applied, makes something better and something that I couldn't have imagined on my own. So I'm dead lucky. She's a tremendous support. And also encourage you to improvise more. And she opened, that's really nice to very, very quickly tell that. Whilst here in this house, because I'm from such a classical background, I can't bear the expression anal, but I'm, I'm very, you know, I have to have things lined up like the quill pens, etc. I would always write, including my classical background and my sort of anal state, I would write very, very carefully and then judge it and jump on it. And then in the last, like starting about two years ago, she started to secretly on her telephone record my silly rambling improvisations and then very quietly show them to me. And, and then almost unbeknownst, I started to play right away even if the music was invalid down the road i would start to play without thinking and that sort of unleashed and opened up an immediate play without thinking and don't judge it so much so that's Mm -hmm. wonderful i'm glad i could tell you that because it's been terribly emancipating for me and prior to that how did you approach a film was it different than approaching other types of composition Yes, but well, you're tied in with the film. You have to do well, what they want. It yeah. was and it wasn't because when I, Angela, you sensibly mentioned Everything's Illuminated, which was my first serious, you know, film score bits. And thanks to Liev Schreiber, who was just rock solidly stood by me in face of all the producers that were like, oh, for goodness sake, fire him. He can't work a computer. He's never done anything. But I got job because of one simple thing that Niev liked a melody. And I'm, as you both know so well, I'm, I'm hopelessly melodic. So it was a melody that he really liked. And he kept absolutely like a valiant knight in face of Sony and everybody else saying, I like this melody, he's got to do it. So I would say that I, I have to find a melody that say you as my director's feel some kinship or validity too. And then upon the strength of that simple little melody, I can then proceed to keep the focus of your question. It's not that different than writing a piece, except that in writing, and I was taught this by a a beloved friend of ours, who's a legendary music editor, Polanski's right hand, everything for years. She said to me early on, and this is Susanna Petic, that you remember from Effie, of course. Mm -hmm. And he said, the only goal, Paul, is whatever that melody or those little bits, is you must bring the director's vision to life. That is the only thing it's for. So once you've got that little, tiny little piece, then I would go from there. It sort of becomes a thematic, is that would you say? Yes, it does. And it weaves through. And that's the only difference between composition writing and film that before I started my filmic bits, I'd write something that I thought had some hope, validity in some way. And the only difference is in film is that like for your film, I would want you to feel some connection and it would then bring your film to life. That's the only point. It is the composer must divest himself of absolute all ego and alter ego to make the director's vision come to life in a way that It couldn't without the help of music. That's the whole point. That's interesting that it's the director, that it's that vision that you're focusing on, which is beautiful. So it's really the filmmakers. 
vision it, even more it, so it, than it, the story it, it, and the characters. Absolutely. It should be, I think, to be really valid. If any, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not saying this disparagingly, but musicians that think I want to do film music and they, heaven forbid, and this happens unfortunately quite a lot, I think, or rather I fear, they think this film will be a vehicle for my music. That is a horrendous approach. It has to bring the film to life. It's only about the film. Mm-hmm. Or they should not. And that goes back to the great, great composers for ballet and modern dance, but classical dance. I mean, that's how Diaghilev, Prokofiev, all these combinations, even someone like Skriava and Prokofiev, they wrote for the vision of the choreographer. And that's why they were great successes. If not, it never holds up to my humble view. Mm-hmm. We were talking a little bit about as a couple, how you sort of fuel each other creatively. And I, I kind of always think of you in regards to like this canon of these great couples, artistic couples, and some, I mean, some are dysfunctional, I have to say, like Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, but there's also yeah. Hemingway and Gellhorn. There are people that come together in whatever way, good or bad, fuel each other creatively. And I just feel that I always see you sort of in this very positive light, but how do you fuel each other, especially in a business that is so unpredictable and Angela, how would you answer that? Angela has a very... No, he just said, do you want me to start? Oh, no, forgive me. I just... Oh, no, no, anybody. I just love that about your relationship, but I'd love to know more about that, how you keep each other going and inspire each other. I have to just say one thing. We haven't actually worked together forever. We started off together, and then we ended up in the Wild Colonials. That wasn't together. That was a band. And then I was in Telepop, and he was doing film. And we never actually worked together. We would do a couple of songs, you know, but we never sat down and did an album. And it was absolutely shocking to realise that. I came here and we sat down with a grand piano and he would play every other day. And where he was at, just sitting down and improvising, it was just amazing. And so we decided for the first time in our life, let's do something together. And Paul came up with this incredible vision of doing an album about music in the time of confinement and he went off in the studio and he would be up like for 18 hours at a time and we took just a combination of music that I had already recorded maybe and then some new stuff and we did this what I would call an almost like a a symphony of non-stop music it's just an hour long but it goes through all the different moods of how it was like a women's journey Paul called it of getting through life almost And we sat down and he took these pieces of music that I did. And in between, he would weave this story and he would play original. He made everything join up at the seams. And it's absolutely gorgeous. We haven't put it out yet. We have this on Bandcamp, for instance, trying to raise money for the LA Food Bank. We put out in the last four months, we put out five compilations of Paul's music that nobody's ever heard. And we put them on there and we said, you can gift them, you can give them away, or you can donate, you know, a dollar or a hundred, you know, some people put a thousand dollars, some people $10. It was all about, for me, at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was about putting stuff out there, giving away, giving away out to the universe, you know, just put stuff out every day because it's hard when you're sitting in a house doing nothing, you're not doing gigs. And also it's very hard to motivate yourself when you want to watch another episode of Breaking Bad, you're like, how do we get in the studio? He got into this flow where he pulled together this beautiful piece of music and I put up his five albums on Bandcamp, which made thousands of dollars for the LA Food Bank, which was brilliant. And they're but so also, good. They're so good. Also, all these, there's an album there 
with his daughter when they did in London when we were doing Effie he went into the studio with his daughter and did a whole album with his daughter playing harp and him and piano that's out you know there's like five albums on there that anybody can go on and get them for free and it was just about making people feel better because music is the one art that is about feeling it's about emotion it hits you immediately it's a very emotional feeling Whereas everything else is much more cerebral, maybe. But music to me is like God. It's like, that's why you believe in God, because you feel your stomach going, you're like, why did that happen? Oh, my God, why are tears rolling down my eyes? Oh, my God, why am I feeling so inspired? Why am I feeling so melancholy? And why is it connecting to how I'm feeling right now so perfectly? It's, It's the job of the musician to make feelings become real you know and you can feel that oh somebody else knows what I'm feeling like it's just he has a magical I think a magical connection with his music to make people feel something that they don't even know they feel sometimes you know I mean I listened to the album that he made with me and I'm just like blown away this is the first album we've made together the first album and Angela because you talked about Paul doing a lot of the music do you sing throughout it as well? Yeah, but we take some old songs, like it begins with Autumn Leaves, and then it'll go into something that Paul and I did, then it'll go into like maybe something we did with the Wild Colonials. But in so between this it, is a culmination of all your years you know, in Wild Colonials and then your solo work. Is this, yeah. is this sound the yeah. culmination of Wild everything? Colonials in there, there's solo stuff in there, there's stuff that I've just done with Paul, and he plays all the way through it and joins everything up and plays over a lot. I mean, for instance, I did a big dance track that he plays all over that just connects him and I. It's wonderful. Sorry, what do you want to say? Oh, I wanted to say too, because this is so terribly special. This is my favorite musical work. You know, I'm going to audaciously, but truthfully say period. I had the luck of years ago with like a one and a half, two day window to do a recording at the old Busby Berkeley soundstage of covers, mostly, you know, my favorite melon, to me, sad is happy, as you know, melancholic songs of Billie Holiday, etc. It was called Curio with a wonderful string trio that I was part of. But I wanted in the years ensuing, I kept envisioning this big work, which is not of a musical genre. It could be a classical pop, just terms didn't really matter. And during this time of confinement, unbeknownst, Angela helped me put these instrumental bits up on Bandcamp. And that was wonderful for me to have that little chance to look outward and not think of my wretched self and trying to bring a bit of comfort and solace musically. But one day it dawned on me and I'd started and I had this collection of recordings of hers that I really loved that no one had heard. And then suddenly not to get all like Damascus Road, but I had this flash and I thought back to Carol King's Tapestry and further back to Schubert's Die Frau und Liebensleben, Woman in the Time of Love and Life. And I thought, how wonderful if this, and I just suddenly knew it, as daunting as the project seemed, but I was excited to have a, a piece that would still be meditative, that would bring either listen to loudly or way in the background, like an hour-long piece that would bring some sort of comfort and meditative state, but it would tell the story through songs, one to the second ensuingly, in this case there are eight, that these songs would tell the story of a woman going through a time of confinement and learning how to sort of cope and what it taught her. So that's what the songs actually do, and it's called 
to, you know, a little tip of that to Gabriel Marcia Marquez. It's called Love in the Time of Confinement. Is Is it love? Beautiful. And it would tell a story of, and I say women because I think this wretched world has been ruled by horrid white men in particular for too long. So women to me are much superior as Sorry, Alex, but I. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to tell that of a woman of strength and gumption or finding new strength of her learning process through this time of every bit from being tremulous, being uncertain to getting bits of strength and then grabbing it and then moving forward. So that's what it actually does. And I can't wait for you all to have it. I'll send it to you both. Thank you. When when are you releasing it officially? When are you releasing it officially? We were going to just put it on Bandcamp, but then a big marketing PR in, in New York heard it from Girly Action, and she was like, no, let me do this. So Great. expensive. We said we don't have the money. She said, I don't care. I'm doing this. I love this. I'm doing it for free, and she wants to put it out. So they will probably make some films to go with it so that you know we could make an hour-long film. So that and it's basically for people. I have so many friends right now on their own. It's harder. You know, they're all sort of, people who were maybe like really into their work or really like workaholics and suddenly their life has just stopped and it's terrifying because they're like, oh my God, what do I do now? And it was just something that they could put on and that is the podcast as well. Lie on the couch, have a bottle of wine and either listen to us in the podcast and have fun or listen to the music and just have it running in the background all day. It just was that feeling of sending out an atmosphere of people are thinking about you and caring because in this time, I actually find it really hard to even have a phone call with anybody and we don't even drive. So we've been up this mountain for like eight months. We haven't been down the mountain yet. So I could be in like Istanbul for all I know. We have no connection with LA or anything to do with it. We don't go anywhere. The food's delivered. Everything in this house. We're so lucky that we have. It's incredible. Well, I was going to ask you how the lockdown and the pandemic has affected your lives and what the silver linings were. And this sounds like a big silver lining, this collaboration of yours. We were laughing today. I said, we are busier now than we were ever last year. You know, we've just done um, a big project for Yoko Ono about endangered birds. We then did a big PSA for COVID where I sang I'll Be Seeing You, you know, the old song. We've been doing all sorts of like incredible projects. You know, I'm doing all the painting of the clothes. I just did a big thing where I painted all these clothes for Rufus Wainwright for LA Magazine. All the things that have been sitting in my back burner for like 20 years, you know, are suddenly, I'm doing them all now. And I'm Wonderful. not- Will they be published these? Because oh, you do okay. these incredible paintings on Paul's clothes. That- oh. Yeah, well, that's what I've been doing. I just, one of those suits just was featured, it'll be featured in LA Magazine in March with Rufus. They did a big shoot up on the mountain where he was playing for um, the Grammys. He did a live show for the Grammys and I got them all to wear my clothes for this Grammy shoot. So- the thing is, I'm putting, I've been putting out very slowly because I don't want to just throw up an Instagram and put all these, here's all my stuff. It's very special, you know, and a lot of it, I'm collaborating. I've started a little company with somebody who's a giant photographer and we did all the, I'll send you the photographs, Robin. We did photographs. She did the most incredible photographs. And the thing is, with these clothes, if you mm-hmm. put them out, people notice them. So when I put them out, I need it to be done properly. These are like one-offs. They're like haute couture, you know, I had the idea of going to one of the big designers. For instance, I've been using a lot of Varvados and McQueen. And I'm saying to them, you know, in this time of sustainable clothing, when people are like, oh, 
we have to do something here. I, I would get like an old seasons version of Varvados and I would paint it and I would go to Varvados and say, look, at the end of your next fashion show, we take last year's, give me 10 pieces from that and I will paint them. And you would be the first designer to do your own sustainable line of haute couture. And not only that, this haute couture is like, if I paint it, there's only one in the world. It really is haute couture. There's one in the world. There's not like 10 dresses like this mm-hmm. or 15 suits. They're all like a piece of art. And then I spoke really? to David Fahey of Fahey Klein here, who's a big fan of the World Colonials. And I'm discussing like maybe doing an exhibition of the big photographs and have mannequins with the clothes on them. So they could be pieces of art or you can buy them. There's also like an alternative where I come into your house and like, for instance, what Paul was wearing on that photograph that you saw was an old pair of loafers that he hadn't worn for 10 years, an old Burberry raincoat that he hadn't even taken out of the wardrobe for 10 oh. years, and a pair of jeans <laughs> that were like for gardening. And I painted them and he put them on and literally we went out that night, we were somewhere and we got stopped in this club by this nine foot guy who was like with this tiny little girl with like big hair and they both come over to us and we're like, what is he wearing? And, you know, Paul's like, oh, my wife painted them, you know. And they were like, this is insane. This is like a Burberry raincoat. This is incredible. And he was like, yeah, it's sustainable. We're taking an old Burberry. We're painting it and making it look. And they just went, and they were both from Vogue. They were both like, one was a stylist was a photographer and she said can I see the rest of your stuff and they came up to our house the next day took away all of my clothes and then did this incredible photo shoot with this dance company like the LA dance ballet company oh so that's great the, the photographs are incredible I mean you've seen them Alex they're, uh, they're amazing they're I can't amazing. wait to see them they're, yeah, they're like work of art itself it's it's incredible that's my other side. Before I was, I'd never had any intention of being in a band. I was in a couple of pop bands when I was young, but I was never thinking, oh, I want to be a singer in a band. Uh-uh. I wanted to be an artist, a painter, or an actress. And I went to drama school and I did that for about seven years. And now I did the Soderbergh. I did like the neck only because people come to me, you know, I'll be talking and like the writer of the Soderbergh was like, you have to come meet Steven. So I went in and I played like a hooker in the neck and then oh. I've done like all these different pieces, but I don't want to be an actress, but it's hysterical because I'm always going to put- You have a, quite a screen presence. I've, I've told you that. Okay. It's very powerful. I think you've just got a natural presence on screen. You do not. And on stage, but I think you should do more. Well, maybe. I mean, Sheila Jaffe, who's a casting director here, who's been on it for years and- I remember meeting Catherine Bigelow when we did our first gig at the Troubadour and she wanted me for Strange Days. And there's a very funny tape going around from those days where they did a, a, like an audition tape with me where they asked me to sing, you know, a Brian Ferry song and I sing it and it's this Strange Days or whatever. And apparently at the end of it, I sing it. And I say, you know what? This would be much better for like Bjork or maybe Courtney. And I start giving all these suggestions of who else would be better for it. And all my friends in the business were like, that is going around. It's like the funniest tape anybody's ever seen. First time they've ever seen an actress saying, you know what? Why don't you use this person <laughs> or that person or this person that's on the actual tape? You know, because I was just so like, I'm doing music and acting to me. I love the theater. And I did do the, this Mary Pickford where I played Mary Pickford's mother. And this was a I massive, love that. it was a massive film. And I was playing like the mother or whatever. And I looked about 150 years old. The whole act of getting it at five in the morning, doing the makeup, sitting in the trailer for 17 hours and then getting out for a minute doing a scene. I'm just like, this is no art. This is just boring. I'm sitting in a trailer <laughs> or I'm sitting around talking to a bunch of gaffers. It's just not art. I mean, obviously, theatre, you're on the stage, you're doing it. It's brilliant. And in a way, I didn't know what I was going to be. I really had no idea what I wanted to do in the end. So when I came here, America just said, uh, you're going to be this. And this is what's going to happen in your life. 
Imagine sitting in Glasgow and thinking, I'm going to go off to America and I'm going to end up in Hollywood and I'm going to go into this record label called Geffen and I'm going to sign this deal for $1.2 and I'm going to go and tour and meet everybody in the world and I'm going to sing with like everybody from like Dr. John to Cindy Lauper and I'm going to do all these amazing... I mean, if anybody had said that to me, I would be like, are you insane? You know, the most I was thinking is I'll be an actress in the theatre and that was like kind of my goal. And it wasn't until I started singing and Paul was the massive encourager. He was, he was the one that was like, you have to sing. In fact, a couple of times we, when I, we were in Ireland making a film called Hear My Song. Before That's why I ended up here. It was nominated for an Oscar. And I took Paul to Ireland. And we were living in this big castle and we would go at the weekends. We would do these incredible sort of little shows around in this big castle sort of room with a grand piano. It was so freezing. Everybody would have to wear blankets. And people like Marianne Faithful would come. And she actually said to me, you have to sing. And that's that album. I don't know if you know Curio, Robin. There's an album called Curio that has eight cover songs on it of like Tom Waits, David Bowie, Billie Holiday, whatever. And that was the very first cover album. And then it's so amazing. You know, 17 years later after I met Marianne, she was playing with us. We were in Stuttgart with telepop music and we were enormous. We were playing a giant festival. We were like number one. And she was on the stage before me and we were backstage and I went and knocked on her door and I opened the door. I said, do you remember me? <laughs> and she was like, darling, I can't believe it. You know, she, she's like, you sang? You know, it was amazing. I mean, I have stories that are incredible. I used to work with the Pet Shop Boys, for instance, at EMI all the time, loved them. And I literally, we were opening for them in Leipzig in East Germany. And I'll never forget, we turned up in the bus and I went backstage and Neil and Chris and the Pet Shop Boys were like, Ange, what are you doing here? You know, and I'm like, I'm with Telepop. And they're like, oh, amazing, amazing. And I thought they kind of realized that I was a singer, but they were just thinking like I would do with them. I'd be like the producer on the film or something. When the gig started and I walked on stage, I'll never forget it. Neil was holding my hand. I was walking. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was like, <laughs> I'm the singer. He's like, you're the what? <laughs> you know, he's the fucking singer. And, and then when we went on stage, the audience were like, pet shop boys, pet shop boys. And Neil came crashing on the stage. He's like, shut up, mate. This is my friend. And this is the singer of my favorite band. In fact, we asked him to tour with us. We couldn't. We were so busy. They wanted us to do a world tour. And I came off and he was like, that fucking song, Breathe, I can't stop. You guys are amazing. And it's you. It's you. He couldn't believe it. All the stories that would turn up in my life because of the years of working at EMI, even Chad Smith and the Chili Peppers. I totally forgot I worked with him. He used to sit on my desk at EMI and copy my French accent and my Scottish accent and make fun of me. And then years later, we were at dinner and, and he turned to me and he was like, oh, my God. He's like, I can't believe it. I've just realized you're that fucking Scottish chick from EMI. And I was like, oh, my God, new Chad. You know, it'd been 10 years. None of us had even remembered all these incredible stories about meeting people like even Shirley Manson from Garbage. You know, I'd worked with her at EMI, all these amazing people. I've had just such a magical life that I had nothing to do with. Not a thing. Not a thing. That's what's so amazing. What is your hope for the future for both of you? What is it that you want as we move past, hopefully past COVID? What do you want to see in the future? What I think what's going to happen is I've got a funny feeling we're going to be offered like a television show for some weird reason, because the podcast is getting like a lot of press now. These two comedy gold, Angela and Paul, you know, they're like unbelievable. They're hysterical and all that sort of stuff. But also musically, we're already doing it. 
We started working together. That's actually happened. And for the future, what I would love to do, I mean, think about it. I've been doing music for 20 years. I've been touring the world. So I'm not exactly sitting here thinking, oh, I want to be in a band and be a pop singer. That's not my goal. My goal is I love to sing, but I want to do special things like with Paul or people that I want to work with, like even the Yoko Ono thing or the the COVID thing. I love to do special things. And I also love, as you know, to do our little soirees. And the soiree might be something that could be the woman at Girly Action. She was like, you know, I had a one woman show in New York that Alex made me do. He was on my case here and he kept saying you've got to do a one woman show you got to do it. and I was like uh, I'm so like uh. and finally he just got on my case so much and I didn't know how <laughs> to wear anything and I went off and had a joint and I don't smoke grass and oh. I got a little dictaphone this was like 15 years ago and I sat on my bed we were in LA then and I just read out you know what was going to happen lights down voiceover Glasgow party everybody's drunk screaming at each other and it was very funny doing this in, in New York because the lights came down and all they could hear is, where's my fucking vodka? You know, and all these <laughs> people like singing and I'll never forget it afterwards. You know, people like Michael Stipe and Salmon Rushes were like, that was terribly compelling. You know, is that- I think like? we should do it again. I, I really think oh. we should bring it back. Alex, you directed it? No, I, I produced it, but it was amazing. It was such an amazing experience. I always say this, we should bring it back. We really should. Nice idea. And what about you, Paul? What brings you hope? For the future. I'm so happy to say this. With You should be playing and making records. Yeah, but with just how important it is to me. When I was a child and onwards, even in my father's healing meetings and all the bits, which as controversial as that is, obviously, but I wasn't really in school and music. I was professionally playing since a child onwards in all sorts of odd, but I would play the music for the unapologetically simple hope that it would bring a little something to somebody. It didn't matter who or what. And what I really treasure the most and what I found through the beginning of this time from late last year, late February, early March on, and that said wryly and humorously with my sort of slightly Sylvia Plath, Virginia Woolf head. (laughs) uh, And at, at first it was very difficult. I had two really beloved friends who were smitten with this thing and then they passed away and it was very very traumatic from the beginning on the Mm -hmm. east coast there was a tendency to like seal that platian bell jar and get under it and just think oh dear oh dear and you know sort of go off and do a an awful waffle and then in talking with angela anglefish as i love to say as you know i realized i came to the great realization that for goodness sake paul when you wake up just If it's, you know, baking a biscuit or a tiny phone call, try to get outside of your head and do a little something for somebody. And that's what led to the Bandcamp albums. So I would say in summa that for the years that remain to me ahead, I feel that in this dreadful time, I found the raison d'etre, which is to whatever one does in music or anything, try and do a little something to bring a little tiny something to anybody. It doesn't matter what it is. So with my, the abilities that I've got in music, et cetera, I'd like to have an outward motion, whatever it is. And with all respect to film music and, and my great thanks for it and the livelihood it's brought me, I sort of rediscovered the thing I had lost playing for daddy and other like healing things and whatever, which was just to focus on music. It can be anything just to take what one's got 
and try and put it out to bring a little something to others. That's what I would like to do in the 50 years or two days that <laughs> remain ahead. I don't really care, but that's what I'd like to do. That's, but wouldn't that's it be beautiful. If all I started to make records and actually played concerts, which he's never done, mm -hmm. of his own music, you know, mm -hmm. like recitals. That's why when we do our soirees, I, I love it when he just plays and people really react. He never gets to do that. Right. Yeah. And then there's this kind of wonderful collaboration within your soirees, as you talked about earlier, that was yeah. happening when you started out. It kind of brings things full circle to your early roots, it seems. But there's nobody in the world, Robin, who can make me oh, mutually sing the way he makes me. I mean, for instance, we were doing this song, I'll Be Seeing You, you know, I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. It was one of these songs that's kind of difficult. And it's very funny because we look back to the early days and he said, trying to work with me is like trying to rein in an Arabian stallion into a small cupboard. Because ah! you know? <laughs> I'm really fighty. I'm one of these people who's very impatient. And if I'm not brilliant immediately, I'm just, that's it. I'm over it. I'm over it. And it used to drive my mother insane as well. But Paul has this, you know, he'll start off fighting with me because poor guy, he gets, he gets completely and utterly shattered and shell-shocked and nervous when he has to work with me and I'm like why are you like that what's the problem with you why are you like why are you so nervous <laughs> and it's funny because we always start off like howling and screaming at each other and then he always ends up corralling. capturing he always ends up corralling me in like a giant stallion like absolutely <laughs> horse He's, he, he lures me in and lures me in and then finally gets me to like sit down and do it. And then he'll sit there in tears. Like for the last two days, we've been trying to do this thing. We've been in the back and I make him go and sit in the bathroom while I'm singing in the bedroom. That might be an overshare. <laughs> and he comes in and he's like, oh, darling, darling. If somebody could film this, they wouldn't believe it. It's just like such a, he has made me believe that I have something different. When I sang in my pop bands when I was young, I just did a nice rock voice. I didn't know I had a voice. I have to ask, because we started out with the question about what it was about Angela you heard. And Alex had asked this question. I don't know if you guys heard it. He had yeah. asked, was Angela singing when you heard her voice? Yes. Yeah. I mean, what happened was this evening was insane. As you know, later on that evening, Nina Simone walked in and sat by the piano, which this is true. Heightened, Nina Simone. heightened the atmosphere quite beyond ridiculously. But I was playing one of my faubourg, you know, like Il m'a venu or Padam or something. And I just heard this person, obviously from a table intoning, so yeah. to say, like singing improvisation. And then what it was, because to me, I, I did a lot of playing for opera singers when I was young, um, even Beverly Sills, like old legends. And then that said, which was still important to say, because we were taught in classical music and singing that the great singers are sort of walking instruments. They're like walking strads or guineas. They have this tone. So I heard this tone that I thought, oh my goodness, that's really special. But more importantly, it was a conduit of a certain purity of emotion that came through. And, and it's not any that I was any particularly fast on the trigger or anything hearing this. I just, to me, you hear that in like the first one or two seconds. And that's what arrested me. And then, of course, I told you I turned around. She was like, no, I was dressed singing. like a, a great 18th century painting. Well, I was saying earlier when I told you this, I was singing. I didn't well, know any French happen. songs, but I sang accoutrement, you know, knives and forks, poisson, fish, 
and cheese, fromage. And I was standing behind him and I went, accoutrement, poisson, fromage. That's all I sang. That is all I sang to him, <laughs> literally. And when he turned around and said that, I just thought, what a shyster, you know? And he said, no, no, you must, you must sing. We actually started, the, he got, we got to, he was only there for a few weeks in London and we got together the next week and he showed me like, you know, all these old songs. And we did a gig on this Saturday night in an Indian restaurant where they didn't have gigs. It was very hip though. And it was like the Waverly Inn. All our friends came and it was fantastically fun. And literally, I'm sitting on top of the piano, cross-legged in a velvet gown with a big straw hat, singing God Bless the Child. When the oh. door opens and in walks Nina Simone. Oh and my God. can you imagine? Can you imagine? I'm thinking, am I seeing things? She's got like a gigantic six-foot turban straight up to the ceiling, big gold earrings. She's got five guys with her. She walks like she's on roller skates. She just kind of glides through, sits down, and literally puts her finger up for the waiter. And I'm looking at this. I'm thinking... Her song just started that you were about no, to sing? I'm in the middle of my show. I'm singing like I'm at the third song, which was Them There's God Shall Get, which she wrote. She wrote, <laughs> she wrote oh, the song. Amazing. And she walks in, and I lean... Paul's got his back to her. I lean down and, and I say, Paul, I said, Paul, Nina Simone has just walked in. And he didn't look up. He just kept looking and playing the piano. And he said, be professional. Be professional. That's what he said to me. <laughs> He's like a classical pianist. You know, they train to, you know, you throw a cat at their head and they won't budge. They'll just keep playing. And I literally, I was in a state of pure shock. Uh, it was unbelievable. And we, we carried on with the show. I couldn't believe it. Having to sing in front of not only the woman that wrote it, but Nina Simone. Incredible. I've got to finish the tale, although I wish I could do visuals. I might have, um, I'll have to demonstrate it on you. So then, you know, La Simone, imposing beyond like the Statue of Liberty at this point, came up to me very, very oddly. And to this day, like almost like a slightly blessing slash nightmare land and looked into my eyes and said, I like the music which was pleasant enough. And then I, I, I stutter when I'm nervous. I always have. So I put my hand out demurely to shake her hand, just to say thank you. And then I went to say, uh, like, Mademoiselle Simone or Miss Simone, and I started to stutter, and I went like, Miss Simone, Simone. I got that out. <laughs> and then I will never, to my last terrestrial days, get over this. I, I had my hand extended, and she seized my index finger, instead of shaking my hand very oddly, in a vice-like grip and said, yeah, great. Like, you know, some non sequitur. And then as I went to pull back and Angela was like, sit down on the fucking piano for fuck's sake. <laughs> I went to pull away from her and she, and she, was, go. she was stronger, <laughs> stronger than Schwarzenegger. So I couldn't pull the finger out and this went on realistically and modestly said for yeah, almost up <laughs> minute of mounting horror and finally when i was pulling i know it was really all like panic stricken panic attack like lost all decorum pulling with all my <laughs> little abilities she let go suddenly as if on purpose and i flew back and sort of struck the piano <laughs> and then she rolled out this and is it, great i can't wait to hear this episode very silly oh it's hysterical it sounds like so much fun well so wrapping up we do this thing called the quick draw round. And we're going to be asking you six questions in 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. All one word answers 
first thing that comes to mind. Okay. So, Alex, like, you want to take it away? So greatest song ever written. The Casta Diva from Bellini's Norma. Uh, don't explain. Mm-hmm. My Billy Bozzi. Favorite film score? Ennio Morricone. Once Upon a Time in America. These aren't things you can answer in one word. <laughs> the Battleship Potemkin. Who, who composed Prokofiev. it? Prokofiev. Prokofiev. Favorite thing about Los Angeles? <laughs> the weather, actually, in the space. The ocean. Favorite thing to cook? I just get Paul to cook. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite thing for Paul to cook, then? Crushed chocolate souffle cake. <laughs> <laughs> Most underrated artist? Nick Drake. I like that choice. 17th century composer Vitali, V-I-T-A-L-I, Vitali. New lockdown skill. What? New lockdown skill? <laughs> Well, it's running a podcast, basically. Think of someone else. Like it. Thank you, I, guys. Angela, you were going to say something? I taught him to do that. Appendage. <laughs> <laughs> I taught him to do that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. This is great. Thank you. Is that really it? Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. It's four in the morning, end of December. Writing you now just to see if you're better. New York is cold, but I like where I'm living. It's music on Clinton Street all through the evening. I hear that you're building your little house deep in the desert. Are you living? For nothing Hope you're keeping Some kind of record Yes And jam Can Buy with love Your hair She said That you gave it to her That night When you planned to go free Did you ever You, you look so much older Your famous blue raincoat was torn at the shoulder You've been to the station to meet every train But you never turned up, I mean Lily Marlene So you treated some woman to a flake of your Got home. 